0: Pain and suffering is a universal question. It's a universal question because it's a question that every single human has to wrestle with at some point in life. No matter how long you've been on this earth, inevitably there's going to come a time when pain and suffering really come home to roost, where something in life can threaten to just overwhelm us and make us wonder, why is this happening? If there is a God, what is he doing about this? See, throughout this series, uh, Explore God, we're tackling these big questions. We're addressing them together as a church because of the fact that they are questions that people truly wrestle with. There are big questions of life that are often uh, made clear and crystal clear, especially in moments of pain and suffering, in moments of great difficulty. And so over the past several weeks, we've just been kind of leaning into some of these tough questions. Last week, we, we leaned into this question, is there a God? And we, that, we address that question because of the fact that there are a lot of people who wonder, is there any evidence for believing in God? Is, is, is there anything in, in science or in history or in our personal experiences that would, that would lead us to believe that God actually exists? And while I think for many people, needing evidence and needing reasons to believe is an important part of the journey of exploring God, I think for most people, those aren't the most fundamental questions. But actually for many of us, even after we've been given reasons to believe, we still come up with our question for this morning, which is, why does God allow pain and suffering? The reason we come up against that question is because in those moments when we encounter pain, when we encounter death, when we encounter suffering, whether it's something that's self-inflicted or something that's brought into our lives from the outside, this, uh, this question kind of comes home to us. And it comes home to us not simply as an intellectual question, but as a deeply personal question. But really at the heart of it, what we're asking is we're asking, why does God allow my pain and suffering? Why is he allowing me to go through what I'm going through? How can I believe that God is actually loving or that he's in control or that he's all-powerful with all the wickedness, with all the pain, with all that I'm having to endure? It's a very real question that I think every one of us at some point in our lives has to come face-to-face with. I know for me this past year has been a particularly difficult one. Uh, we began the year having lost a child. In the middle of the year, we lost a friend and a fellow coworker. And I think as I look around this congregation and I think of the funerals that I've been a part of or had to lead, I know that many of you have felt the sting of this question as well. And so this morning, I want us to lean into it, I want us to, to really explore it together. But I think it's only right that before we do that, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we look at our world and, and we encounter pain and suffering and we wonder, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why is it that, that, that I or we or they have to go through what they're going through? And so Lord, we, we bring that question before you this morning. We ask that you would meet with us in the midst of this question, that you would show us where you're at work, that, Holy Spirit, you would bring comfort. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, this question, why, why does God allow pain and suffering, is one that I think we, we actually encounter on a daily basis. We encounter it every time we turn on the news, or we listen to the radio, or we scroll through social media, or we talk to our friends, and it's because we look at our world and we realize that that something is broken, something isn't quite right. That when we that when we turn on the news, what do we see? We see things like like violence. We see things like hunger and poverty, natural disasters, abuse, and disease. But we also feel it in the broken relationships in our lives, in the, in the ways in which our dreams haven't quite turned out, those moments when we find that we ourselves are faced with sickness or weakness or our own mortality. And in those moments, it's, it's, it's the, the question, why is this happening? Why does God allow pain and suffering really does come home for most of us? And one of the things that I find so interesting is that in those moments when people are going through pain, when they're wrestling with things like the loss of a loved one or, or, or uh, what seems like just needless and, and crazy violence, we start to say things like, this, this isn't right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Why does God allow this to happen? And it's, it's tempting sometimes to wonder, Is is God actually behind it? Is he responsible? Is he the one who's inflicting all this pain and, and suffering on our world? And, and I would actually, uh, what I would, would kind of argue this morning is that when we ask the question, you know, why is this happening? When we start to say things like this isn't the way it's supposed to be, that actually we're right. Because one of the things that our faith tells us is it tells us that no, God is not the one who's responsible for the pain and suffering of our world. That his desire was actually to create a world that was filled with beauty and life. A world that was absent of violence and hate. A world that was absent of disease and death. That when he created all things, he looked down at the world that he had made and he said, It is very good. And that he made us as, as people to dwell in this beautiful, very good creation in loving relationship with him and with one another. The question is so what happened? <laughs> How did we get from that beautiful picture to to where we live now in this place where things aren't the way they're supposed to be? And the answer that that we give from our faith is we say, well, it's really because of us. Because although we were given a perfect world in which to dwell in loving relationship with our creator and with one another, we chose to, to do things according to our own plan and our own purposes. We broke the thing that God made so beautiful. Well, that's the answer I think we would give to, to, you know, the source of pain and suffering. The reality is, is that even giving that answer, though, still doesn't address this fundamental question, does it? The question is, okay, so why does God allow it? We broke it, but, but why does he allow it? Why does he allow it to continue? Why doesn't he just step in and stop it? Why doesn't he deal with it in some other way? That question is specifically, why doesn't he deal with it in some other way? I will be honest, ladies and gentlemen, I have no idea. And I think that anybody who claims that they, that they know for sure that God could have done it some other way and that this is the way he should do it and, or knows why he's not doing it some other way is, is just guessing. At best, they're guessing. Because the reality is, is I, don't, I don't know why he allows it to continue. If, I don't know why he doesn't just do it some other way. But one of the things that I do know, one of the things that our faith teaches us, is how God is present in the midst of it. And, that pro- and it tells us about the promises that he gives in helping us to face it. And it's really in those moments when we encounter pain and suffering, that's really what I want to talk about is, is what promises does God give us when we encounter this question? When this question becomes a reality for us in our day-to-day life. Many people say, you know, God is all-powerful. He could just, he could just wipe the slate clean. He could just start fresh. But I actually think, one, and one of the things that we see as we look at our faith is that God is actually even more powerful than that. That he's actually able to enter into pain and suffering in a way that, that, is, that is truly beautiful and transforming. And here's what I mean. One of the things that I have come to love over the years is what I guess I would label redemptive art. Okay, I don't know if there's a specific art term for this kind of art. I am not an art connoisseur. I didn't take many classes in the fine arts. But there's this kind of artwork. I call it redemptive art because basically what the idea is, is that you take something that's discarded, something that's broken, something that's maybe even ugly, and you turn it into something beautiful. I love pieces of art like this this one from Mozambique called the Tree of Life. This piece of artwork was, was made by a sculptor who basically took the, the cast-off guns and artillery shells that had been used in civil wars in his region and he kind of welded them together into this tree. And he called it the tree of life really for two reasons. The first reason that he called it the tree of life is because he was using these instruments of death and in creating this sculpture, what he wanted us to consider as people is, is how we might take that energy that we seem to, to always devote to destruction and actually devote it toward the preservation of life. In many ways, it was a message to us and to our worlds. But the other reason he called it the tree of life is because he was actually reflecting on uh, an image that we see in Scripture, in the Bible. It's an image that, that is found both at the beginning and at the end of the story. It says that in the beginning, when God created everything, at the center of the garden of this beautiful, good, and perfect world stood the tree of life. And then at the end of the story, it says that when God comes again and makes a new heavens and a new earth, there again at the center of the garden by the river of life is the tree, the tree of life that bears its fruit each month, which are for the healing of the nations. This idea that, that there is a, a world that needs to be remade, needs to be redeemed, a tree of life which needs to come to bring about our healing. It's a beautiful piece of art. I love pieces of redemptive art like this. I, I love the, the redemptive art form of, uh, of Kintsugi. It's this Japanese art form in which they take broken pottery, right? And rather than throwing away the pieces or discarding it and just making a new pot or a new piece of china, what they do is they, they lovingly, they painstakingly gather up all the shards. And then an artist takes them and, and puts them back together and, and basically pieces them back together in gold. Gold lines where there once was a cracked and shattered dish. This beautiful image of of taking something that's broken and restoring it and actually making it even more beautiful. I love redemptive art because I actually think redemptive art is harder than starting with a blank canvas. It's one thing to start with a blank canvas where everything is perfect, right? And to have your own idea and all of your perfect tools there at hand, and to come up with something out of your, your own imagination. It's, it's one thing to, to have an unformed piece of clay, right? Nobody's manipulated it or messed with it before, and you get to, to somehow slowly turn it into a beautiful vase or a lovely dish. That does indeed take skill. But I think it takes even greater skill to look at something that someone else has broken. To look at something that's shattered. Something that someone else had made, but now is nothing but pieces. And rather than simply throwing them out and discarding them, to lovingly gather them up piece by piece. To piece them back together in a way that's even more beautiful and awe-inspiring than the original. I think that is the skill of a true artist. That where every other artist just looks at something that's broken and needs to be discarded, real artists can look even at what's broken and say, this story is not done. This piece is not ready to be discarded. And create something truly beautiful and awe-inspiring. And I would say what could be done for those cast-off weapons and for those broken dishes can be done in human lives as well. And I say that not just as a, a person of faith, but this is something that psychologists themselves have attested to. In fact, the, the well-known psychologist uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she's the one who came up with the five stages of grief, said the following in her book on death. Or the book is called Death, the Final Stage of Growth. She writes this, she says, "'The most beautiful people are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, with gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people don't just happen.'" It's an, it's, it's an amazing testimony from somebody who excels in the field of psychology specifically as it relates to pain, suffering, grieving, and loss. But what I love about the story that we tell is that as true as that is, it's even more beautiful when you realize you don't actually find your way out of the depths alone. That there is actually an artist who lovingly gathers up the broken shards of our lives and puts them back together in a way that is truly awe-inspiring. See, what we believe is that, yes, God is all-powerful, which means that he can take even the brokenness and the suffering and pain of our world and rather than simply wiping it clean and tossing it all away, can reforge it into something truly amazing. That he can actually look at our lives and bring about healing and beauty and growth even in the midst of life's darkest seasons. In fact, it's something that we read earlier on in our service from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Here's what one of the earliest Christians, the Apostle Paul, wrote. He says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What I love about that quote is he's saying, Yes, God is able in the midst of our suffering and pain to bring forth something glorious. But he also says, but you also don't face your pain and your suffering alone. That God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It means that for those of us who have faith in God, he actually resides in our hearts. He lives in our lives. It means that there is nowhere that we can go, nothing that we will face where he is not already present, walking with us through it. But he is able to take our lives like those broken dishes, lovingly gather up the shards, and piece it back together in a way that is beautiful, awe-inspiring, and glorious. God says, although your pain and your suffering may may be so overwhelming now, know that it is not the end of your story. That I am able to take all the brokenness. And rather than throwing out your broken life and all the things that have happened, I can reforge them into something new. That is one of the amazing promises that we find in Scripture. I think it's actually interesting that that some of the heroes of faith are people who've gone through intense loss and deep pain, and yet God is still able to work with them, use them, form them into something more. You may be sitting there and saying, that may have been true for them, Pastor, but is that really true for me? Can God really do that with me after all that I've experienced, after all that I've done? And I would say that the answer to that question is yes. How do I know? Well, I, want to think, I want you to think with me for a second about what is the central image, the central symbol of the Christian faith? Usually when people say, well, what's the kind of the central image of the Christian faith is it's a cross, And I find this fascinating because it's very different from some of the central images and pictures you get when you look at the other philosophies and religions of the world. When you look at Buddhism, kind of the central image is a flower, a lotus, or maybe even a statue of the Buddha sitting with his eyes closed to the world, a slight smile on his face, totally detached from suffering. Or if you look at like Hinduism, it's the picture of Krishna with this glee on his face as he dances through creation totally unaffected by the pains and sufferings of the world around him. Or maybe it's the, the the wheel of rebirth, saying that there's another time, another chance around. But then you come to Christianity and the central image is a cross. An image of profound suffering. That at the heart of our faith is this idea that God is not above or outside or distant from or holding at arm's reach the pain and the suffering of the world, but rather that he steps into it that he experiences a kind of suffering which many of us have never had to endure. The suffering of being abandoned by friends and family, of falsely accused, of subjected to torture, and nailed to a piece of wood to be hung on display for, the ridicule, by, uh, for ridicule by his own people. A kind of suffering that ultimately led to him dying and being placed in a tomb, A tomb whose door was rolled shut and sealed for what people thought would be all time. Central image is one in which God enters into pain and suffering. But what I find amazing is how he then enters in and transforms it. Because three days later, that tomb was empty. That the stone was rolled away and the dead man who was laid on a stone slab walked out again into the sunlight that our central image is actually a bare cross and an empty tomb. What it says is that God doesn't simply ignore our suffering. He doesn't simply stand outside our suffering. He doesn't speak down from the heavens to our suffering and say, just get through it, you'll have better luck next time. But rather, he enters into our suffering and he transforms it entirely. He actually takes our suffering and death and swallows them up. That out of suffering, he brings peace and joy. That from death, he brings forth life. From brokenness, he brings beauty. And if God was willing to do all of that, to face all of that, to to face the ultimate kind of brokenness, and bring forth new life, then this promise is that he can do that with you as well. That although the suffering may seem overwhelming right now, you can know your story is not over. That that cross and tomb weren't the end of Jesus' story, but that he walked forth in glorious light, and that means that one day you will as well. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says basically every dead end that we see is simply a new beginning for God. That when we come to the end of ourselves, what he says is, I'm not finished with you yet. And it's something that actually enables us to endure as we rest on the strength that only God can provide. Again, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, I think is just so amazing. He says that we have this promise, this hope, this eternal life. We have this promise in uh, this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So we are hard crushed on every side, but uh, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. See, when we face pain and suffering alone, it is indeed overwhelming. But when we pay- face it, knowing that our Redeemer lives. We can rely on his strength and not our own, that though our lives look like nothing more than jars of clay, they bear within them the presence of the one who can make masterpieces out of our mess. And this is what I think enables us to to, to face suffering well. In fact, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, Tim Keller says that when you understand this story, this central promise of God, it allows you to do several things. Several things which truly bring encouragement and hope in the midst of suffering. He says the first thing it allows you to do is to walk. To not be overwhelmed by your suffering nor beat down by it, but allows you to continue to walk through life because you know you don't walk it alone. God is walking that journey with you. He is on that path within you, by your side, holding you up and carrying you even when you feel like you have nothing left. He says, when you know that story, it allows you to truly weep because you know that God does indeed grieve over the, over the brokenness of our world, that he's not afraid of our tears, that he doesn't tell us to stop crying, but he says, you can come and you can cry on my shoulder. You can pour out everything and know that I hear. He says, this story allows us to truly trust So that when pain and suffering are in our lives and we feel like we're just not getting the answers that we would want, we can know that because God has overcome suffering and death, that he will overcome it again. To recognize that he may not do things in our own timing or in our preferred way, but it doesn't mean he's not at work. It allows us to truly pray. Recognizing that prayer is a conversation with God. That when we're angry, upset, hurt, frustrated, grieving, God says, you can tell me. I am listening. He's not afraid of our pains and our hurts. But in fact, if we so desire, we can come to him and scream our heart out. And he's not afraid. He says, you can come and speak with me. And I can speak with you. And point you back to the promises that I have for you. It allows us to truly worship. Because in worship, what we do is we are reminded of the things that God has already done for us. When we read through things like the Psalms or the prophets, what we see is of the mighty things that God has done for us, his character, it points us back to his character. That love that will carry us through all of life's darkness. And finally, it allows us to truly hope. Because the way the story ends is with this promise that one day he will come again and make a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be no more weeping or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not just a nice wish. It's a wish that we can hope in because he has already done it. That in time, in space, in history, Jesus Christ walked forth from a tomb. He overcame suffering and death once before, and when he comes, so too our tombs will be empty. Death will not have the last word. And so we can hope, truly hope, because we know that God is able to back up what he promises and to fulfill what he says he will do. When we encounter pain and suffering, when we encounter the difficulties and challenges of this world, we can look to Christ and we can know that our light and momentary troubles are indeed achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Even in the midst of hope and uh, even in the midst of pain and suffering, there is hope and new life. For God, the master artist, is present with us. And the one who has overcome death will do so again. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, that we say, Amen.